Man, it's not hello, hello, testing, one, two, three, four, testing, hello, 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 hello testing. No, but... Oh, I see. Stereo? With everything on the same speakers? That's what I was trying to say. Okay. Welcome to the Palish Blackpool. You're welcome to it, mate. As long as I'm not one of them. What are you doing down here? Everybody's got to be somewhere. Yes, but who are you? Oh, the hard ones first, eh? <laughs> Yesterday, someone came and took the stove away. He's coming back again today, but that's what he took yesterday. Well, that sounds like that. Hopefully, Princess Anne's recorded hooves will come. <laughs> Here is a preview of next winter in Jimmy Grafton's attic. Sleet rain and trousers are falling. The monkeys are still doing it in the soup. And the snow lies heavy on the slopes of Racklewell. Is it possible? Is it possible to, to divide the microphone so that one uh, these two outside mics are playing Blood Knocks Battle and the center one might be playing Henry and Minnie chewing the piano? It's not possible. You got to the moon the other day. I tell you there is a curse on the house of Moriarty. What is it? The Hampstead Building Society! <laughs> <laughs> Joining me this week is author, playwright, and stand-up comedian Ian Billings, uh, who came along to talk about the last Goon show of all, which is halfway to getting a telegram from the Queen or Harry Seekham in a floral creton frock. So without further ado, unnecessary flim-flam or waffle, here it is. I was on holiday recently, and I was listening to a lot of a lot of stuff, as 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 is my want, and I uh, I was enchanted shall we say by spike and the elfin oak ah thank you very much so tell, kind of... yeah so tell me about the, the making of that is that it? have we started now are we off are we t- yes. are talking properly now yes we had a little chat beforehand they probably sorry that's okay i was looking for a red light but then i realized i'm, I'm not in the studio i'm <laughs> sitting at home spike and the elfin oak oh well to take you back many 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 years i did a master's degree in playwriting at birmingham university and it was a delightful course. And all my friends and colleagues and students went off to do uh, to write radio plays for the BBC. And they all became very successful. And, and, and I didn't. I went, <laughs> I went off and wrote children's books for about 10, 15 years, mm. and which, which was great for me because I loved doing, doing the children's books. And it, it took me all around the world being invited to international schools, which was brilliant. But niggling at the back of my little head was, I, I want to do a radio play. I want to show that I can do it. And I'd always had it in my head that if I've ever I did a radio play, it was going to be about Spike. And 
it had to be about Spike because of the, the influence he's had on my life o- over the years. So I, I decided I'd do a little bit of research. And the idea that came up was to do a, a short a play about the a very small part of his life when he uh, conserved um, and helped to rebuild the Elfin Oak in Hyde Park, which, as you may know, um, was a wonderful old piece of sculpture mm. by, uh, um, by a man called Innes. And he built this these little elves that he chipped into the wood of the of the tree and he painted them many years ago and it had fallen into disrepute and and disarray and spike being spike uh, was championing the cause uh, for for ecology and conservation and wanted to to revive and rebuild this oh because it was falling apart in Hyde Park and so he mounted this campaign now I thought that would be a great basis for radio because we could bring the elves to life and that's exactly what I did I thought if we can get the elves participating in a kind of goon-like way Mm. i think it might make for an interesting piece of audio and then to involve spike or an actor playing spike and get him to almost have a goon-like feel to the piece i thought it might become quite an original piece of of writing and it did and i was very pleased because the first uh, producer i sent it to wanted to do it Gemma, Gemma jenkins and it went on to get nominated for best new writer in british radio thank you very much yeah. <laughs> and the actor, the actor who played Spike, won Best Actor, and that was David Threlfall, who you probably remember from uh, Shameless was his famous, his famous show played Frank Gallagher in Shameless, and he was stunning. He was in uh, Nightingales. Do you remember Nightingales? Mm-hmm. Oh, now you're going back. Yeah, with James Ellison and Robert Lindsay. Yeah, and he was fantastic in that. He's um, a brilliant, brilliant performer, and he'd always wanted to to play spike it transpired i didn't know this i'd always thought he would be good as spike because he looked like spike mm. and then of course i realized it's on radio so that doesn't really count for a lot during the recording towards the end we had some narration i'd written some narration for a, an older spike to to read yeah and he was playing around trying to find the character couldn't quite get the voice get and it was fascinating watching an actor work because as he sat there, the lights were low, the curtains were closed, all the rest of the cast had gone by this point. And he started to play around with the voice and just improvise. And then suddenly a little, a little laugh emerged. I thought, ooh. And that sent shivers down my spine because that I couldn't identify it until I heard it. I thought, that's, that's Spike's laugh. I understand that. That's, yeah, I recognise that. Mm. And then slowly, because um, David's got this long white hair and, long, and a white beard, and in the half-light slowly emerging out of this shadow came Spike and it was an uncanny thing. I've never experienced anything like it. I was there when he did it and it was Spike just turned up just to do a few lines and then just slowly evaporated. I doted on my kids. They were covered in dope marks. I needed something to show them I loved them. You do love us, Daddy. Don't interrupt me, child. I'm narrating. Go and play on the grass. See what you can find. Like a mighty octopus, the two renowned explorers, Professor Seeley and Dr. Laura, traversed the mighty expanse of the Serengeti, known to the natives as Kensington Gardens, in search of artifacts which had eluded adventurers for centuries. Lost to antiquity, these objects would never be uncovered. Found one, and so did Laura. Oh, I wonder what they could be. Letters. It's from the Pixies. Ah, good old Pixies. Lovely handwriting. He was great. His voice, his vocal performance is remarkable. Yeah, he, he's, he's a stunning actor. He's a chameleon. He really is. He just channels it. It just comes straight through him. And he was remarkable. And as I say, he won Best Actor for playing for playing Spike. And then, cut forward by two years, I wrote, 
I've read a play about Ken Dodd. I got nominated uh, for best writer for that. I didn't win. However, <laughs> David Threlfall won best actor for his performance as Ken Dodd. <laughs> Thank you very much. No, he's, he's such a versatile guy. He really is a chameleon. He was he was a delight to have on board. He was really quite extraordinary. Excellent. And and um, obviously, I've had Barnaby Eaton Jones on previously, who was involved with um, uh, another play that you wrote, which was Barnaby. Yes. Uh, the the there used to be a me um, about Peter Seltz. That's right. Yeah, we, we we came up with this idea. I I I wanted to write a play about Peter Sellers. You can see a theme emerging in my work here, kind of mm. the second play. And I I I'd written this outline, which I sent to the BBC, and the BBC had had rejected it as as they they a lot of people send ideas, and a lot of things get rejected on a regular basis at the BBC. So I wasn't surprised that they they did turn it down. But Barnaby embraced it. Barnaby's a big fan of my work and of of Sellers and the Goons and and, and all things comedic on radio. And he uh, he embraced it, and we talked about different actors we could have play Peter Sellers because that's a role, that's a demanding role. For yes, him. this chameleon type man who's elusive and vague, and sort of a thousand and one different people. And towards the end of his life, this sort of this shell of a man who looked like he lived a thousand lives already, and he had, I guess, in in, in his films, who could play that? And Barnaby suggested Alfred Molina, and Alfred Molina had played. Tony Hancock in, on film, famously made his, his debut in Raiders of the Lost Ark, Indeed. which I think we can all agree is one of the greatest movies of all time. Mm-hmm. And, um, and since then has gone on some, some amazing work. And um, he was in Los Angeles. We were in uh, our respective little <laughs> offices in the, in the cold UK. And, and we recorded him a couple of years ago doing the Peter Sellers play. And the conceit of the Peter Sellers play was that Peter Sellers played everybody. So Alfred played Peter Sellers, and Peter Sellers played everybody mm. in the play. Mm-hmm. The being that that that's the way he perceives his life. He has complete control over everybody because he is playing them. So it was basically a monologue, but I'd set it out as dialogue, so it was clear who the different characters were and the and the contradictions. And I won't give the ending away, but it is a a, ni- a neat little twist right at the very end when we discover who Peter Sellers really was. Mm. Regular listeners to this podcast will know that I recorded an episode about about the play with Barnaby mm-hmm. um, about six months ago. So seek that out if you if you haven't already yes. heard that. Go and listen. And go oh. and listen to the play as well. Absolutely. And it, it, won, it, won, it won gold recently, didn't it? Yes, it did. I've got to get this right. It was the New York Radio Festivals Award. Mm. Gold Award uh, last year. Excellent. Or best new online radio podcast stroke drama program. So that was very pleasing. Excellent. When's the Seekin play then? Well, this, <laughs> yes. Well, I should do the complete quartet, shouldn't I? Mm. I should do. I should do uh, Harry Seekin, a sort of a tribute to Highway and, and Songs of Praise. <laughs> yes. And, and and then Michael Bentine and, and get his life story played by Little Potty Men. That would be intriguing. Now, listen. I've written the word prick. As a note on my um <laughs> oh, that's very sweet of you. Thank you very much. Uh, yeah. Um, um is, 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 that, is that a review of the show so far? Sorry. No, uh, it, it was it was to remind me to mention that yes. um uh you mentioned Alfred Molina. Mm-hmm. Uh, a couple of weeks ago I watched uh Prick Up Your Ears. Which oh is, yes, Kenneth Halliwell. Yes, which is the the um Joe Orton, Kenneth Halliwell biopic. Mm-hmm. Uh and he, I mean Gary uh, Gary Oldman as, as Orton is fantastic, but 
uh, Melina is amazing in that. Um, He's an extra- extraordinary actor. He's really, a really nice bloke as well. And I think in in, in Prickett Rears, that must have been one of his one of his very early performances. Yep. Mm-hmm. He really was complete. And watching him, watch him in, in, in a sort of a, a, a series of, of, of performances, you see how versatile and how different he is. It's quite amazing. Uh, absolutely. So you mentioned Spike was a big influence on, on you. Um, what, what is your, what's your history with him? What's your history with The Goon Show? Oh, we, we go back many years, me and The Goon Show, mate. We go back <laughs> many years. I'll tell you what it was. It was um, uh, 1975, 1976, something around there. I was but a boy. Mm. And... Um, a, a copy of the Goon Show album found its way into, into our house. And I remember it as if it were yesterday. Volume three, okay. if you remember, it's the David Langdon uh, cartoon on, on the cover. Quite a, a Spartan cartoon, not as detailed as, as, as Hunt and Bill Tidy's later, later pictures. Yeah. Yeah. And it was Lurgy Strikes Britain yeah. and the Great yeah. International Christmas Pudding. And from the moment the needle was put on the record, you know when, when Billy Connolly talks about the first time he heard Jailhouse Rock, I thought, that's for me. That's not for anybody else. That's for me. That's mine. <laughs> and I heard the Goon Show, and I thought, that's not for anybody else. That's for me. That's mine. And it was this wonderful acoustic world that was created. It was unlike anything I'd ever heard. And because it got me when I was about ten, I mean, that's that's the perfect time to really influence a child. It's sort yep. of between seven and ten. It made a huge impact in my mind, in my brain, which still resonates to this day when I go into schools and do performance. There's, there's still a trace of Milligan and Goon in there. It's, it's just it lodged in there now. And I, I listen to these wonderful voices in a way that I, I never heard voices before because you've got that, that wonderful operatic sound of Harry Seacomb with those what, 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 what's ascending mm. in, into the gods. Mm. And they, then there's a kind of a traditional jazz voice of, of Peter Sellers, who's very much uh, on the beat, on the rhythm of the voice, very, very precise. And then you've got this kind of mad experimental jazz voice of of Milligan doing things that are contrapuntal and off the beat and all those combined to create this wonderful harmonic sound which is unlike anything I've heard before or since and I think the music of it the music of those voices is really quite quite a an important part of of its success and also when when you listen to Milligan sometimes it's almost you know when you see like um, a backing vocalist in in a booth with their headphones on, yeah, and all you hear is their bit, and they go wow. <laughs> That's what going is going on in Milligan. There's a melody in his head you don't hear, but all you hear you occasionally just hear the contrapuntal or the counterpoint or the harmonies, and he doesn't let on what the melody is. So all those things combined, I thought was was absolutely thrilling. I didn't think so clearly at the time because I was you know I was ten. I didn't know as many words as I know now. But I thought, <laughs> I like it here. This is a nice place to be. It's safe. I know it's naughty. I know it's subversive, but it's nice. I like it. It's home. Yes, yes. So, yeah, so I went on a bought all the, all the other albums and because they came out on a yearly basis. I don't know if you remember. In the olden days, folks, when, when radio was in black and white, all you could do was buy a, buy a record, a black record with a hole in the middle, yeah. and it'd probably come out once a year. I mean, these days you can go online, you get everything just floods out of your speakers, whether you want it or not. But I had to wait each year, each Christmas or each birthday for a new album. And when it, when it arrived, a new album, new Goon Show album, it's like, it's a beautiful thing, that, that black plastic being slipped out of the, out of the bag with a little hiss of static <laughs> done for the first time. And when it's fresh and new, newly pressed, it's... And you've got something tangible to hold. These days you go on Spotify, you don't get anything to keep. It's, it's nothing to hold. You can't put anything on the shelf. 
but in those days you had something tangible to, to hold and look at and that was that was thrilling so i got a whole whole load of all the albums i don't think i got them all but i, I got the majority of them and uh, listened to them endlessly yeah well see i i'm uh, i got into uh, the goon show when i was 14 and uh, i i was i didn't have a record player so i would have to collect the tapes um uh-huh. and because of where i lived and where i grew up there wasn't really a record shop um or anywhere in the town that you know i could access these cassettes so i would have to wait until my dad would go on his periodic trips to the big city christchurch on business and he would he would pick up a you know a, a, a goon show tape and bring it home and I, I can clearly remember um him coming home once from a trip i think he'd been away for three or four days and sort of he sort of walked through the door with a suitcase and you know wanted to embrace me and i, and I, I think i said something along the lines of to hell with that you know where's my tape <laughs> <laughs> I remember many, many years ago when I was uh, starting to be interested in this, this goon world, I joined a thing called the Goon Show Preservation Society, yep. which many people listening may still be members of. Is it still going? I presume it. It's oh, yeah. And, and I'm a member. I'm a, I, I was a member. I was a member at Lapsed and I've rejoined recently. Yeah. Well, I joined in the olden days when the newsletters used to arrive as um, foolscap. Yeah. Yeah. You get this huge, long gestetnid. <laughs> I'm doing the the the, the mime of a gestetner handle being turned. Okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, you got that. Uh, yeah. Uh, before photocopying, and they clump on the letterbox, and I used to eat it up and find out as much as I could about the goons. And then one day, after receiving that for about six months, we got the new form newsletter. It was A5. It was on yellow paper, mm. and more importantly, on the cover was a cartoon by Hunt Emerson. And I can see it now, three of the goons standing on this steam radio like it was the front of a, uh, a steam engine, bursting out of the page. Yep. It was visceral. I could almost smell it. And I thought, that's brilliant. That's such a beautiful piece of work. And I thought when I started doing my books, the one person I want to, to illustrate them was Hunt. And eventually he succumbed to the pressure and he did. Um, he's done the cover to, I think, about three or four, possibly five of my children's books, which is a great honour. Absolutely. Remarkable talent and, and underappreciated, I think, generally. Absolutely. He's, he's regarded quite highly throughout throughout Europe, but he, I'm, I think he, he, he should be up there with the greats. He, he, he really should be because he's an astonishing artist. He really is beautifully surreal. And that's why his work suits the goons so well, because it's, it's mad, it's surreal, it's daft. It's very, very silly. Start the sh- start the show. <laughs> hurry, Ned. Hurry, hurry, why? We're, we're, we're dying, Ned. <laughs> Min, that? Min's falling to bits. <laughs> She's a loose woman, you know. <laughs> <laughs> time, time for your coronary, sir. Quick, throw a bucket of water over her before the season starts. No. <laughs> <laughs> and now, ladies and gentlemen, my husband and I have great pleasure in starting this goon show number 161. Oh. My husband and I have great pleasure in starting this goon show number 161. My husband and I are having great difficulty in starting <laughs> goon show number 161. That's funny. 
It was all right at the royal rehearsal. So, obviously, today we're talking about the last goon show of all, uh, for reasons which I will explain in a moment. But you were quite keen because you and I have been in contact, obviously, for for, for some time. And you specifically said that you'd like to talk about the last Goon show. So, what is there a particular reason for this this one? It was, it was an interesting one because I remember listening to it, thinking there's there's something slightly different here. The mood has changed somewhat, and I'm not choosing it because it was my favourite because it isn't. But it's certainly um, an interesting indication of how their how their careers and how their skills had changed in the interim in the twelve years mm. since the last one gone out in 1960. I had listened to it actually. Um, just last week, as I knew I was, I was coming on, I thought I'd better do a bit of a bit of homework, and um, I was listening to the re re edited version, the, the the latest version, which I think Dirk Mags has has, has re edited. Yeah, uh, to be um, a, a little longer. I think it's about fifty minutes worth. Of... Uh, yeah, Ted Kendall and Dirk Mag- Mags were okay. involved. Yeah, okay. mm-hmm. a, a little bit more material in there, and I think and, and it's better for it actually because it's it's. It explains a little bit more about what well, what story there is. But what's really <laughs> interesting from from a point of view of liking Spike is that I don't think he felt as comfortable writing the last Goon shows of all um, than he did writing the other Goon shows because it'd been twelve years. He'd gone off and done Q since then, which which was revolutionary and very ungoon like. It was more absurdist rather than nonsense. And there's, you can feel him trying to be what he used to be in the writing. If you see what I mean, and it's great for Harry because Harry comes back and does his, his his usual thing. I don't think you would notice any any difference in Harry, and and you get the feeling that Sellers is there for a bit of a bit of a jolly, just to have some fun again, and uh, be back with his mates. I think it's, it's always very telling with that uh, the famous telegram he wrote to to Harry and Spike at the end nineteen eighty before he died, mm, mm. asking if they could get together and do some more goon shows just just for the sheer fun of being together. And I think that's beautiful. Just the idea of them just having fun and that and that sense of fun. And um, I think you get the sense of him having a, a lot of fun when he could be making another Hollywood movie, but he decided to come and uh, be in the Camden Theatre and, and, and record that. Well, I, I think he he always had a lot of affection for the Goon Show, as we know. But I and I, I mean, he was such an unpredictable sod as well. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yeah. And and it, you know his mood would change from day to day. I think one of the key reasons that they got Sellers to to do the last Goon show was because at the time his career was on the skids. I think it's fair to say. Yes, um, because and then, the early seventies for Sellers was not a good uh, a good time, was it? With these movies. No, no. Um, Until Pink Panther came back. Well, that's the thing because because the, following the success of the last Goon show of all, former Goon show producer Peter Eaton had had suggested sort of in the mid seventies, seventy four, seventy five that. Um, that they do some more, that they do some more goon shows. And I think Spike and Harry were f- fairly up for it, but Peter had, had mm-hmm. just uh, uh, resurrected Clouseau and, yeah. um, and, and he was, uh, you know, he, he was too busy. Um, yeah. But by the time 1980 comes along, you know, he's, yes, he's had the success of being there, but he's also done Fu Manchu <laughs> um, and he wasn't in a good place physically you know in terms of his health and 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 again i think he was at that sort of period of his life when he was very reflective and yes. and looking back um but not not that old surprise no know. was he 50 54 55 54 yeah mm-hmm. and that's yeah. i'm i'm 55 now so i'm older than he was then yeah and he, he clearly got very ill and started to look a lot iller and a lot older than he actually was and i think i say in the peter sellers plays he's he's almost lived he's lived a hundred lives and i guess he has through the characters that he's played oh, yeah. maybe that, that aged him 
Yeah, uh, it was it's a, it was an accelerated uh, decline. Decline. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but it's a great shame about all the things we, we we've missed as well because I know that I think Peter Hall wanted him to play King Lear, which wow, which would have been extraordinary. But um, well, could you so imagine him? I could imagine. I've, I've gone on record before uh, things that he could have been in. Things like I, I I would see him playing the Michael Caine role in Educating Rita, for example. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, that's good. Yeah. And I was thinking just the other day, um, Salieri in Amadeus. You know the oh my goodness, the man. part that um, F. Mary Abraham played. Mary Abrams, yeah. I could I could imagine Sellers pulling that one off, because being there, yes, it was. You know, well, technically, it has, it has traces of comedy in it, but it's it's really quite a, a sincere work. I see it is, yeah, yeah. And um, I think that's uh, was one of the best things he ever did. Yeah. So uh, the reason that we're talking about the last Goon Show of all today is because the week that this show goes out, it will be fifty years since uh, the, the the Goons recorded the last Goon Show of all on the thirtieth of April, nineteen seventy-two, at the Camden Theatre. Quite an interesting story in terms of how how it came about, because. Uh, in, in late 71, uh, the head of Radio Light Entertainment, Con Mahoney, recognised that it was, it was going to be the BBC's 50th anniversary the following year. And he thought it might be a, a rather good idea to reunite the Goons for a special show. And as you said, they hadn't, uh, they hadn't performed a Goon show. Well, they hadn't performed an original Goon show since 1960. There had been a, a, a couple of... Um, uh, restaged goon shows for television as in, yes they've um, done tales of men shirts haven't they that's right they've done they've um, done one on harry seacombe's show i can't remember what the subject was there. it was uh whistling spy enigma was it whistling spy? yeah right. yeah um but but to all intents and purposes you know they hadn't uh, there'd, there'd been no new goon product <laughs> since 1960 uh so john brow who had been their last producer he was approached and he was keen and so he set about contacting the original cast and the, the the crew and obviously uh dear old wallace greenslade had, had turned up his toes by this point uh, quite, right. quite some years before so um john brow got in touch with andrew timothy who'd been the original announcer and and not until i heard goon again did i realize he was christopher timothy's dad yes that's right christopher timothy from all creatures great and small the the original all creatures great and small of course absolutely and, and he was very good yes yes absolutely um so spike spike was obviously contacted he, i think he was the initial goon to be contacted because without spike there's no goon show um well you could without any of them there's no goon show but spike obviously is the the, the driver i guess he's the machine isn't he he's yes behind it all um so he he was interested and he even apparently at the time suggested doing a a run of six shows mm -hmm. um but 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 then it was quickly decided that there would just be the one I think Harry was, when this was being planned, Harry was in Australia filming Sunstruck. And so he wasn't returning until March 72. So they came up with, well, the other thing was that they needed to uh, record it. If they wanted to use the Camden, they needed to record it before June 72 because the lease on the Camden Theatre was due to expire. So, ah. so they hit upon uh, 30th of April as the recording date um they had most people um were, were, were coming back and george chisholm famously mm -hmm. uh, he couldn't make it now max geldray 
initially wasn't going to be able to make it either because he was living in the US. And here's the thing, right? He was living in the US and, and my understanding is, I might be wrong, um, that he would have had to pay his own airfare, right? right. Um, so the BBC wouldn't stretch to um, stumping up. <laughs> um, yes. And, and I read somewhere, although I've tried to track it down where I've read it, but I read somewhere that, that Sellers may have paid for his airfare. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's very nice of him. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think he and Sellers were, had remained good friends, you know, all, all Sellers' life. Um, so because they initially thought that Galdray wasn't going to be able, to be able to make it, they were just going to have one musical break with, with Ray. And and it was suggested also that Spike revise and update um, an old unrecorded script that he'd written in 1960 for the Goon Show. Okay. Oh right. Okay. And I think he did play around with it, and in the end, he abandoned that idea and just just wrote a brand new show, which which was called The Goon's Benefit Night. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it's 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 a hard listen in some respects because there isn't much of a story. And then everything kind of explodes at the end. And some some of the, when he was really on it on his book on the game in no maybe series six and series seven, the stories were really well structured. Yes, so Sykes may have had a bit to do with that, I imagine. Yes, but this was a little bit more wild, and and it was it was it was a tribute show to itself, wasn't it? I guess, and a celebration of of what had gone before. I think one of the problems I always think with the, the last Goon show of all is the the expectation from the audience, both in there in the theatre and at home would have been so high it was a difficult uh, expectation to meet and i think they 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 met the expectation but didn't quite uh, top it so it became a, it's an interesting interesting piece of work in that respect because i think everything would everybody would have been looking forward to it being something remarkable and it wasn't quite but it was very very good yeah i mean it lacks it lacks even the discipline of series 10 which was totally undisciplined in terms of yeah. its structure yeah uh, it's 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 not like a goon show of old it's more i would say it's more like a milligan well, it's not like a milligan q5 sketch but it's more like milligan's tv work if you like exactly um, it done so many years of q and the other thing that also slightly shocked me about the last goon show of all is is some rude words crept in. yeah yeah blue bottle saying i've hurted my groin when when you're 10 or 11 i thought oh my goodness me they said that on the radio and it just gives it a slightly different texture that they've suddenly been allowed to do slightly ruder things and more overt than they, they ever did before. Well, I understand, because I can remember when I first heard it, the cassette of it, and um, the line, I haven't got a knob on my side. And uh, Bloodnock's tour of perversion. Yes, that was the <laughs> other thing. Time for the feather. And, yeah. and all that. Ooh. Yeah, and yeah. it's 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 my it's it's slight compared to what you would hear today, um, but at the time I was thinking, oh, it's a bit it's a bit racy, <laughs> and not <laughs> all we're not altogether welcome either. And I, I, look, I'm I'm someone who's quite fond of things like Derek and Clive, so I'm not you mm -hmm. know I'm not offended by stuff, but I, I don't want my goon show to be um, coarse necessarily. It's, it's it's context as well though, isn't it? You mm. set up a context and and you expect that to be sustained. And when, when it's disrupted and changed, it makes you feel, oh, what have I actually invested in in the first place? It's not a big thing. It's just a, a slight change of tone. Um, 12 years on, I guess, you know, things do change. Psst. <laughs> what? Psst. I haven't touched a drop. 
joke number 29 in the book. Uh, coming back to the script as well, it didn't, Spike said it didn't take very long to write it, which I think is quite evident. <laughs> uh, <laughs> now, uh, former guest um, on, on this podcast, Graham Lindsay Foote, now, Graham um, had a theory. I, re I re-listened to the last Goon show. And as I was listening to it, more and more little things were creeping in that kind of backed up Graham's theory. Now, Graham's theory was Spike sat down and had to write the last Goon show of all. And he was probably under, probably busy, busy man, you know, a lot on the go at the time. And he, mm -hmm. and he possibly just opened the filing cabinet mm -hmm. and pulled out the, the most, you know, the last few scripts from, say, late series nine and series 10 and kind of just went through them and pulled stuff out and used, you know, used bits from those scripts, uh, lines I'm talking about, for example. And um, for example, because there's, uh, there's a sequence in the penultimate Goon show from 1960, which Graham and I talked about, which mm -hmm. um, there's, a, there's a, a piano tuning sequence, for example, and the piano. Oh, yes turns up in the last goon show um the, the very last goon show uh from 1960 has the line there's no fuel like an old fuel <laughs> which turns up in the last goon show of all. oh that's interesting yes. um that the the line half she's only worth half a knicker mm -hmm. turns up in um the 50 pound cure which i think was the last is that the last episode of series nine so again it was it, yeah so it, it, as I say, it's it's quite interesting. Did Spike just have a, have a sift through these old scripts? <laughs> and no fuel. There's no fuel like an old fuel. <laughs> just rest my weary body down in this smokeless fuel. Must have been here for years. There's no fuel like an old fuel. <laughs> no fuel. <laughs> Can a woman with a wooden leg change a pound note? Can a woman with a wooden leg change a pound note? That is what I said. Can. No, she cannot. You see, she's only got half a knicker. <laughs> I say, I say, can a lady with a wooden leg change a pound note? I can a lady with a wooden leg change a pound note? Yes. No, she can't. Change a pound note. All together, folks. She's only got half a knicker. There's a documentary, his uh, Legends of Comedy, in which Jonathan Miller talks about Milligan really challenged the concepts of logic and thought and the way we perceive things. Why do we have money when we could have a photograph of a five pound mm, that's or right. an oil painting of a five pound note? Because we all we do is agree of its value between us. It doesn't have an inherent value. And little things like that, you think this is what he was doing in a comedy show and saying things were philosophically quite uh, sophisticated and quite surprising. I think um, Milligan, there's a lot going on in Milligan that people don't realise straight away because they just see him as the entertainer. And he was a, an incredibly accomplished man in so many... If he'd just done The Goon Show, we would have remembered him to this day. If he'd just done The, uh, the War Memories, memoirs, would you remember him as a, a great comic historian? If he'd just done Q, we would have remembered him just for this absurdist uh, television show. And if he'd just done the kids' poetry to this day, he would still be one of the greatest children's poets. Yeah, and Pakun, of but course. Pakun. But he did them all. Mm. All these things were compared. So all these careers were running in parallel. An, an immense impact. And, and Pakun is a novel. That was his, is his first novel, which, um, which I was very pleased to adapt for the radio uh, about two or three years ago. Yes. 
So um, Dirk Maggs, the great Dirk Maggs, the Spielberg of sound, as I like to call it, <laughs> um, um, was looking for an idea because they, one of their ideas had gone bumble. Something had happened. So they phoned me up and they said, what, what, what can we do? What have you got? So, and I said, well, I've always wanted to do Pocoon because I know there was a recording of it in the 80s, but that was only for an LP. So what's that, 20 minutes, 25 minutes at a push each side? Yeah, that's And right. we, if we did a radio play, we could get 60 minutes. So they got the go-ahead to do that with the BBC. And we had Barry Cry, the late, great Barry oh. Cry, who was a delight to work with. Yeah. He was, he was clearly getting on, on in, in age at the time, but he was bang on with his lines, with, with his, his delivery, no retakes, a couple, couple of, cl- of fluffs. And he was, he was so funny during the recording. Um, Dirk said to him, oh, we're going to have to do a bit of rec- uh, retake there on Barry. We've got a bit of, got a, bit of a spit in, in your mouth there. And Barry said, that's, that's where I keep it. <laughs> <laughs> good old Bess. Yeah. He was, you know, was a good bloke. And um, who else did we have? We had Ed Byrne as, mm-hmm. as Milligan. Yep. Pauline McLean from Father Ted. And Jane Milligan, daughter of, yep. as, as various other parts in the show as well. And that, uh, it went down rather well, that. I, I, I quite enjoyed doing that one. Getting back to the last Goon Show, uh, mm-hmm. the, the script isn't great. I mean, the script's... There's lots of funny lines in this funny situations, but it's it's uh, sprawling, I would say. Um, but, but I think the show overall would have benefited from. And then look, I'm no Republican or Royalist. I've got Ooh, no. This uh, interesting. Where's this going? Go on. Uh, well, I've got. I've <laughs> got I'm, I'm not particularly, you know, I'm not particularly pro or anti uh, right. royal family, but I think it would have benefited from an absence of royal endorsement or attendance. <laughs> You know? Yes, I think it it does change the room somewhat when when Queen you know when Princess Anne's sitting next to you, mm. <laughs> and it did especially in the early seventies when people were probably a little more reverent than we are now. I did a show for Princess Beatrice because I do stand up comedy for kids. I don't know if I mentioned that, folks, but that's something I've been doing for about ten years. And I did a show in a school with Princess Beatrice, and it affected the staff. Their behaviour was was completely different to what you would expect. They were very well behaved, uh, trying not to laugh at the wrong mm. bits. And yeah, no, I think you're right. I think it's difficult when authority starts to endorse uh, subversion and anarchy. Yes, because it does dilute and reduce the power of that subversion, and it does make you think. Oh, was that was it? Was it? Were they really comic Bolsheviks in the end, or were they just sort of pretending to be? And of course, by this time, Sellers had become great mates with because uh, Princess Margaret and Snowden were, yes. were there as well. He was great mates with them, famously, um, Princess Margaret in particular. Um, and uh, if you watch the video recording of it, he he does seem to be often kind of mugging or, or pointing to them or to sort of He's waving or whatever. Walks, isn't he? Yeah, yes. playing to them. Um, and uh, originally, in the in the original script. Uh, Seacom was to actually going to be playing the Queen mm-hmm. as opposed to standing in for the Queen, if you know what ah, I mean. Ah, right. Um, so the, yeah, that was the idea, but Vito, John um, Browell, the producer, mm-hmm. vetoed that. He decided. So again, you know, presumably because he knew that Princess Anne, Prince Philip, and Princess Margaret were going to be there. turning up. <laughs> yes, uh, and didn't weren't they during the original run of the goons? They they get they get admonished for having a character called uh, is it the Duchess Boyles de Spudswell? Yes, yeah, who sounded yeah. remarkably like the Queen, and uh, I think they got in trouble for doing that because you know in, in the fifties in Britain, authority was authority not to be questioned. Things are considerably different now, and obviously royalties changed quite considerably since. So it's uh, it has a different kind of angle to it now. 
Yeah. So there was a lot riding on it as well because they had this this royal attendance. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just intended originally just to be an audio recording, but then a few days before the actual recording, uh, the the head of BBC One managed to get um, you know make arrangements for it to be uh, recorded for okay. um, posterity, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, that adds and that adds more pressure to the performers, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Well, I don't I don't think they played the cameras as such; they just carried on doing what they were doing. However, you know, there's big cameras in there, and you have to be aware of of angles and shots and so forth. So. It's another um, layer which they had to contend with. Yeah, and and then you have the the rather sort of obsequious reading out of Prince Charles's telegram, <laughs> uh, yes. which everyone politely applauds at the end. It's kind of uh, okay. <laughs> um, one of the other people that obviously didn't, wasn't able to be there um, mm-hmm. was Angela Morley. Um, of course, because um, she was elsewhere. Yeah. It and was, had she moved to America by then? I can't. I think so. Possibly, yes. Because um, I hadn't realised until recently that Angela Morley was doing arrangements, whatever the technical term is, on Star Wars. Yes, that's right. And she did some arrangements for John John Williams. Yep. And did a lot of TV shows like oh, I, I can't remember some whatever cop show from the nineteen seventies, and did um, Watership Down. Watership Down. Yes, and arrangements for things like Dynasty. Dallas, I think. That's yeah, that's probably what I'm thinking of. Yeah. Yeah. And so we have Peter Knight conducting. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, because of that, and they've got most of the orchestra back, the original orchestra, no George Chisholm, as I said. But again, you know, the music, the orchestra does the orchestra sounds different to the original Goon show. You know, the 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 theme tune at yes. the end and everything, that sounds different. And of course it's yeah. you know it's 12 years, so what do you expect? But still. Things have moved on. Yeah, I don't know if they used any of Angela's original uh, arrangements, or whether they created new stuff for the for the for that one show. But no, it does sound different. And I think I come back to what I said right at the very beginning. It's about the music of the show, both the the, the physical musicality of it and the music of the voices that make it so distinctive. And once you start to change things, you do notice it. It's got yeah. a different feel to it. And until you mentioned the, the orchestra, I I'm not thought about it, but now I do. You're absolutely right. It does make a big difference. Mm. It really does. Andrew Timothy said to me he hasn't been introduced yet. Oh, Andrew ah. Timothy! Yes. I oh. Ladies and gentlemen, Andrew Timothy. And Andrew Timothy, so, I mean, I, I think in the original run when he was announced, he, he wasn't particularly engaged with it, but he sounds particularly <laughs> peevish. Um, and, and I've listened to some rehearsals, rehearsal footage. Maybe that's just his manner, but he just sounds like he's not really, um, he'd rather be somewhere else. Uh, but, you know, he, he, he does what he needs to do. I think if one of these, if, but in, in many ways that, that serves the comedy, like Margaret Dumont in the Marx Brothers film. True. We need somebody to be appalled and astounded by their behaviour and think of them as idiots. So it makes it funnier. Once you get the once you get the authority figure mucking in and being funny as well, it, it reduces, it reduces the confrontation, the drama of it. Well, yes, yes and no. I mean, if you think about Greenslade, though, Greenslade would would often join in, and Greenslade would often uh, oh, Greenslade had a show dedicated Absolutely. to it. But I think by that point they'd started to play um, 
play on the tunes a little bit more. They started to play around with expectations and the audience knew he was an authority figure, but was starting to be uh, to play around with the expectations of the audience. Mm-hmm. And I think Andrew and Timothy was just straight down the line. I'm, yes. I'm, I'm in charge and you're the children. Yeah. I think he was friendly with them generally. I just think mm-hmm. he, uh, I think he found the whole show in general rather silly. <laughs> I tell you, the, the other thing I do like about Milligan, though, that I've, I've thought about over the years was this. And I noticed this when I looking back on it now, when I was about 14, he used to talk about the human race in his books and how mad the human race are. And he'd talk about and he'd write about the stupid and bizarre things the human race do. And he was the first writer I'd ever encountered who talked about the human race as if he was looking at them from a distance, as if, if he was kind of a an anthropologist looking at a tribe across the lake. Yeah. So what are they doing? Oh, they're burning down those forests. What are they doing? Oh, you know, all those conservational things that are uh, ruining the planet at the moment, more and more people are being aware of. He was on to in, in the 60s and the 70s. Oh, yeah. But yeah. talked about the human race as if he was outside looking up, down on them. That blew my mind when I was a kid. You could step outside your own species and look at them. And when you do that, you realise how mad we actually are. Well, yeah, I mean, he was he was an early voice in terms of, you know the environment and ecology and uh, saving the environment uh yeah. you know he was he was getting involved in all sorts of causes good causes you know um and that sustained throughout the rest of his life but absolutely and then that is so laudable that somebody's prepared to stand up there and go look this is wrong you're all mad this is what should be happening and no matter what you feel about ecology it's quite clear the planet is being ruined and is being screwed over and is slowly disintegrated beneath our feet with only a minute to go before midnight and we're not doing enough. And Spike was screaming about that years ago. And if he was alive today, I'm sure he'd still be screaming about it. And rightly so. Mm -hmm. If you were a casual listener to The Goon Show, say, if you were listening, if you'd listened to, say, half a dozen old Goon Shows and then you heard this one, you'd know straight away that it, it's not part of the usual pack. Not part and, of the canon, as they say in science. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and there's there's obviously there's some modern references, modern for the time, oh, yes, 1972. Course, yeah. um, there's, there's a reference to the Grateful Dead Seagoon sound. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, and there's a reference to Grosser Heath. That's and grosser right. Heath, the grosser got cut out of the uh, the LP version I heard, yep. and I think that's a that's from the private eye used to refer to Ted Heath, the Prime Minister, as uh, grosser Heath to do with the the common market and so forth. And so there's a very very tight cut in the LP when they just cut out the word grosser. Yes, says. <laughs> there's also yeah, in private eye. There's also reference to Neesden, which was regularly yes. uh, yes, uh, yes, crops yes. up in private eye. Um, also, you've got sellers as a constable at one point. So Seacombe, who's standing in for the for the Queen, is trying to start Goon Show number 161. Oh, and, and there's, there's, no, there's no jokes in the tonk. No jokes in the tonk. There's a problem. <laughs> it's, but Sellers, Sellers is playing, uh, you know, uh, d- default, uh, non-des- <laughs> nondescript Cockney constable. Constable um, 101. Yes, but then he does a Kane impression, Michael Kane impression. Yes. Now... So this this whole and I assume Michael Caine was in the audience because he kind of looks out into the audience. And yeah, I'm not sure if he was, but yeah, some people okay. have said that. But um, yeah, possibly he was. Now it's clearly meant for somebody, isn't it? I from from what I can establish, hmm. the the Michael Caine catchphrase. Not a lot of people know that was coined by Peter Sellers. Yeah, 
Okay. Yeah, because Michael Caine was very apparently used to deploy lots of odd facts hither and thither. Yes. Whether you wanted them or not, and then end up by saying not a lot of people know that. Uh, yeah, and and according to Wikipedia, um, Sellers initiated the catchphrase when he appeared on Parkinson. Okay. In late okay. '72, but mm-hmm. he clearly says not a lot of people know that in this show, which was April '72. Hello, 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 hello. <laughs> A constabule of old England played by an ageing Peter Sellers. I'm sorry, sir, you cannot put that huge, bloated Welsh body down. Watch it, Rosa. I have been watching it, sir, and it gives me no pleasure. <laughs> now then, there's not many people know that. The other thing about it, and, you know, love Sellers, love love his vocal dexterity. He do, I don't think he does a great Michael Caine impression generally, Peter Sellers. Well, what's, what's really interesting, I was just thinking that myself, at the time that would have been a great Michael Caine impression because nobody else was doing Michael Caine. True. And he'd spotted it and everybody go, oh, that's what he sounds like. But now, of course, people are imitating not only Sellers' imitation, but are doing better versions of it. If you look at Paul Whitehouse or Phil Cornwall, when they do their Michael Caine, or indeed Rob Ryden, and, and Steve Coogan, oh, the trip. far yeah. more accurate mm. versions of, 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 of the Michael Caine voice. But, you know, so, but also if you look at Mike Yarwood in the 70s, some of his impressions were not perfect. We're not as good as a lot of impressionists do now, but he was the first one doing them. Yeah. And I think that's, that's you, st- you start to blaze the trail, you start to break the ground, and that's to be, to be admired. And then lots of people follow, and sometimes they do it better. Sometimes they do it worse. That's a very good point, actually. I never thought of that, yeah. Sellers at one point does a Stan Laurel impression, which, yes. which yeah. hints of Chauncey Gardner to come. Somebody with a name like Hitler can't be all that bad. <laughs> it's another fine mystery gotten me into. It's thing- not somebody's not necessarily funny. It's just slightly offbeat, slightly odd. Yeah, and there were some there were some references that just completely baffled the what 14, 15 year old me. Mm-hmm. Um, when I first heard them, the um, what's the recipe today, Jim? What's the recipe today, Jim? <laughs> right. Now, did you? Did you, you know what that is now, don't you? Yeah, Jimmy Young show. Yeah. yeah. Which I, I I actually knew when I was watching when I was listening to it because my mother would listen to Jimmy Young on Radio Two in the morning. I think it was ten o'clock after Terry Wogan, and when he did his recipe, he had this strange little voice that would say, "What's the recipe today, Jim?" But this what that actually dates it. Because if you listen to them, some of the goons in the main series of five and six, so it doesn't, they're not dated as much yes. because they don't make as, make as many topical references. What's the recipe today, Jim, sends it way back and makes it feel older than some of the older shows, if you see what I mean. Oh, yeah. And also you've got the reference to um, margarine. You can't tell the difference between, um, yes. what is that, a lump on the head? Stalk and a lump on the head. And, and that, so that's stalk margarine, um, yeah. which was advertised by... Leslie Crowther on TV at the time. Yeah. Yes, yes, I think you're right. I think the best characters in this are Minnie and Henry. I think um, Blue Bottle's a little bit off model. Yes, he does sound slightly different. I I would disagree. I I think my my favorite, always will be my favorite, and my favorite in this is is Eccles. Okay. And what's lovely about his appearance in this is it's one of the last regular characters to turn up. And when he does turn up, he gets this wonderfully warm round of applause because i think eccles is the original goon he epitomizes that kind of simplistic simple view of life that milligan aspired to just being a complete idiot and i think that idiocy really 
epitomizes his, his, his view of the human race. We're all mad. We don't know what we're doing. And Eccles just epitomizes that so clearly. And he's eating his coal and he has that lovely line, everybody got to be somewhere, which is philosophically so, so apposite. When he says that line, everybody's got to be somewhere, it, there's gradual audience appreciation, yes. isn't there? <laughs> it's, a, it's a grower, that one, isn't it? It's slowly cotton on to it. By the way, he's singing the when Eccles turns up, he's singing. Um, yeah, yeah, and that's from a shredded wheat commercial, apparently. Is it really? Apparently. God, you're good. Yeah, that's very good. Sh- there are two men in my life. It's from a sh- well, <laughs> we've learned something new there, folks, haven't we? <laughs> this is why he's in charge. That's brilliant. Natural shredded wheat. Shredded wheat is whole wheat. There are three men in my life. To one, I am a mother. To the other, I'm a wife. But third one gets the best. It is natural shredded wheat. Getting back to blue bottles, so I said he's 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 not quite the blue bottle of old. Um, no. He describes himself as again James Bottle, 007 and three quarters. So uh, size, yes. So we've got we've got a reference to James Bond, which we wouldn't have had uh, necessarily. Oh, of course, in the fifties, yeah, because yeah. because yeah, yeah. in nineteen sixty, you know, we're two years off Doctor No. I know that mm. um, Bob Holness had played um, Bond on the radio in the fifties, hadn't he? That's right, um, in South Africa, I believe. Yeah. Uh, but Blue Bottle describes himself also as ace reporter for Junior Oz. Now, did you pick up on that? Oh, no, no, no. That's very good, because Oz would have been late 60s. The Oz trial, yeah. which uh, John Mortimer presided over, yep. uh, was an obscenity trial, wasn't it? Yeah. In, so, in the late 60s. Uh, they, I can't remember the details, but the Oz trial was, was notorious. Well, yeah, because it was, there was, there was a, Oz was a counterculture, infamous counterculture mm. magazine. And they did an, uh, uh, an edition which was called School Kids Oz. And th- that issue was apparently edited by fifth and sixth form children. Right. And, it, and it was full of, for the time, filth uh, and, and became notorious. And it was, mm-hmm. yeah, like you say, it was the subject of a very high profile obscenity case, um, which was in 71. So, yeah, the year before this. Um, yeah. And once again, it does, it does date it. Yeah, and I've not picked up on that one before. That's a, that's a very good observation. Yeah, in terms of particular sequences or jokes or uh, anything in particular that you know really. Take, well, really I, I love I love the whole the whole Eccles sequence, and I love Little Jim. Um, say that again, Little Jim. <laughs> it's beautiful. I said I don't understand what he's saying. He says he doesn't understand what he's saying either. And it's, it's, it's so beautifully done. That, and occasionally in Milligan, in The Goon Show, there's this wonderful un, unity of the comedy that is so perfectly structured. Like, of course, the famous one is the uh, What Times It Eccles from mm. whichever show that's from, I can't remember. And it, it just it's just a perfect piece of, 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 of poetic writing that works so well out of context and in context that is is beautiful, especially what time is it tackles because of the way it concludes itself and it has a complete circular structure to the writing. 
And I look at that and I think that is actually a thing of, of, of beauty. And I, and I love those little moments. Um, he was always coming out with these mad, wonderful ideas and allowing you to see life differently. There's a lovely bit in, I can't remember what it's from, but it's an outtake from one of his albums. And during this outtake, he's, he's just sitting, chatting to the band for a bit. And then there's suddenly a pause. And then he says, that was a 33 and a third RPM pause, folks. If you play it at 78 RPM, it doesn't get any louder. And I thought, that's brilliant. That's really interesting and surprising way of look at, looking at things. And it reminds me, because when I go and work into when schools, kids will say things that are of Milligan. Mm. I was in a school not so very long ago, and I was getting the kids to, to draw a picture of a character they'd invented. And this kid had drawn this, started to draw this picture, and his, his hand went up in the air, and I said, yeah, what's your question? He said, do you want us to draw this in the first or the third person? Think about that. Yeah. Mind blown. <laughs> <laughs> what is a drawing? Is it you? Is it us? Is it the first person, third person, second person? Yeah. It's, it's a real conversation killer, isn't it? Because <laughs> you have to think. Wow. Um, despite listening to the rehearsals for this. So where, again, where have you heard the rehearsals? Um, they're available on the Goon Show Compendium. Oh, uh, really? Okay, is, I've not uh, heard that. Uh, volume 13, I think it is. Uh, there's a okay. whole bunch of outtakes and rehearsal footage and stuff. Um, but you just mentioned about Spike, just little sort of off-the-cuff comments and things. Mm. There's at one point he asks um, John Browell, the producer, if there's a if there's something that can be done in terms of a microphone utilised mm -hmm. or something. And John Browell flatly says no. And, and Milligan sort of goes, mm -hmm. sort of wanders off mic, and you can hear him saying, they put a man on the moon last week. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Yes. Little, by the way, getting back to Little Jim briefly, uh, it, during rehearsals, Eccles refers to him as not Little Jim, but Lennon. Oh. This is my nephew, Lennon. Okay. Okay. And I don't know. And I'm, I'm thinking, is that Lennon, Vladimir Ilglich Lennon, or is it, oh, John, Lennon. Is it John Lennon? John is Lennon. It, um, so I don't understand that at all. And then obviously it's dropped for the actual recording. And it's yeah. uh, so that was wise, I think. Yeah, that is that sticking out the top of your boot wearing a cap. That's my nephew Lennon. Oh, hello, Lennon. I didn't not understand what he's saying. Say that again, Lennon. I still do not know what he's saying. He said he doesn't know what he's saying either. He man must be one of Mrs. Thatcher's incomprehensive schools. Obviously, they need to push Neddy down the well in order to provide Little Jim with an opportunity to trot out his catchphrase. Uh, and I just, I was checking as well when he last appeared in the Goon Show proper. Okay. Nice. Um, and he last appeared in, in series nine in a show called The Call of the West. Mm -hmm. okay. Which is available on uh, well, that was an album, wasn't it? I, I bought that it volume was. seven, I think that was. Yeah, it, volume seven. I, 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 can't, I can't remember, but I think yes, I think that was his last appearance. I might be wrong, but I think that was his last appearance. Right. Um, but what amuses me about that, if that is the case, I think it's the show after that, or a couple of shows after that, is the episode Dishonored again, mm -hmm. which it has a recurring gag, which is people falling in the water. <laughs> Little Jim 
doesn't turn up. So I just. <laughs> it's taunting the audience, perhaps. Expect to build Possibly. the expectation, then, then take it away from. I was dancing. With my the, the, obviously, we've got uh, Railington. But Railington goes goes first, unusually. His musical sequence is first in the, in the running ah, order. Yeah. Um, and it's Tennessee Waltz, which is a fantastic uh, rendition, I think. It's great, isn't it? Yeah, I love that. Uh, and, and Max obviously has his has his spot, which is great. Um, but I think Seacombe is on particularly fine form. I get the feeling that Sellers is kind of not 100% putting his all into it necessarily um and i think milligan's kind of you know milligan's enjoying it but but he's also kind of slightly distracted seekham sounds like he's you know fully immersed in it fully bought into it and and he's giving it his performance if you sort of plucked it out and placed it into a you know a 1959 episode of the goon show it wouldn't sound out of place no absolutely i think he was very very consistent very very much on his game and very very professional sellers and milligan both being geniuses would never always be at their best they would fluctuate mm. sometimes they were absolutely stunningly brilliant and sometimes bloody awful and that's that's the risk you take when you work with brilliant people you never know if they're going to be up or they're going to be down or, or wavering in the middle mm. but uh, but Seekham was certainly consistent and that's very much apparent in in, in the last show of all you, you said the word bloody it reminded me. <laughs> um, oh, there is a Henry at one point says, "Listen, you bloody chicken." Oh, really? Yeah, I think it's cut out of the LP version, um, but it was re reinstated when um, Ted Kendall put out the fully restored version. And it's it's it sounds wrong again. Getting back to this coarseness, mm. it sounds wrong to hear a, a goon show character say bloody. Yeah. It's interesting. Uh, what we build is an expectation for a character can be in a book and a film or a TV show. They have to be. They have to stick to those rules that we that are set for them by the by the creators. When they when they break those rules, it's quite it's quite a big thing. Especially if we invest in them as much as we do with the Goon Show characters. Yeah, we love them. And then they do something we don't expect. And you go, oh, really? Yeah. Even a small word like bloody. Yeah, it comes just before or just after Henry and Minnie are having this little sequence and. I think Henry's muttering something and, and Milligan as Minnie says, speak up, Eric Sykes is in. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, yes. Yes, Eric Sykes is in. Do you think, and I've had this conversation with a couple of people, well, not really a conversation, we just sort of raised the, the notion. Mm -hmm. Could you have seen Michael Benteen taking part in this? I think it would have been lovely for Benting to have, to have come come along, if only to do a little guest appearance or a little spot at the end or something. It would have been a nice a nice closure for the whole thing because I think Benteen is is very much marginalised in the history of the Goon Show, mm. and he was still around. He was still working, and I don't really know what 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 happened to to that he left after was it after series two or something two, like yeah. that. And he never came back. So consequently, the three of them became the goons. And it's also interesting to know how many comedy teams do succeed when they're in threes. They always say the rule of three is quite important in comedy. But think of the Marx Brothers, the Goodies, um, yeah. e e even to today, League of Gentlemen. Always True. in threes. True. And the, when, when you tell a joke, it's always an Englishman, Irishman and Scotsman. And it's the, it's, it's the least number you need to form or imply a pattern. 
and certainly the, the goons are in their threes, but they were once a quartet, and we, sh we shouldn't forget that. Dear old Michael Benteen. Who, who gets a reference, at least, in, yes. the, in the show. Um, which is good, which is good. I'm glad they did that. Yeah. I've always wanted big pots. Wait for it, wait for it. You've always had them, Nitty, <laughs> you and Benteen. <laughs> the only man with no room for the old inside leg. <laughs> It's just after the heat, underfloor heating defective bit, isn't it? Is it around that sequence? Yes, it is. Which, which again, that baffles me a little bit because Salas fluffs that sequence. Yes, and, and, and fluffs it very badly and then doesn't really make it clear what it was meant to be in the first place. No, no. And, and so this is, maybe this is a casual uh, approach to it once again. And they didn't cut it out. No. I think they didn't cut it out because he didn't do a, the, 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 the correct reading in the end anyway. So they just left it as it was. That's right. That's right. Blood knock. We've touched on him before. Um, again, it's just mainly references to him being a pervert and um, his bowels and his yes. problems. And also <laughs> Ray doing um, the red bladder briefly. Yes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so uh, the, the show, as, as we know, the show doesn't, there's no, there's no actual plot as such, other than the fact that Harry is standing in for the queen and um, does he run up to Blackpool? Is that where he runs up to? I can't remember. Something like that. It's it's really just a, just a, a chance for all the characters, just a parade of the characters, isn't it? One yeah. after another, come out and do their catchphrase and so forth, and do their expected silliness. Again, I keep harping on about this. I don't, you know, apologies, but listening to the rehearsals, it's quite fascinating because the show is tweaked and the, the plot is tweaked, and you, you can hear bits that don't turn up in the actual recording. Mm -hmm. um, bits that are dropped and and whatnot. The the one part of the show that Spike seems the most involved with or exercised by, or he's he's really concerned about getting it right, is is what they just in the rehearsal they describe it as a freak out, which is the last at the it, end. It's the end. It's the the goons version of the um, musical crescendo from Day in the yeah. Life. You know what I mean? It's that yeah, build up at the end, and the which, and... which I wish I wish that hadn't been the end of the show. I wish there'd been a different ending. I, I, mm -hmm. I just to me, it just doesn't really pay off. Um, but listening to the rehearsals of it, Spike is really, really, really uh, pushing for it to be done properly. Oh, um, and actually, I think one of the rehearsal uh, sequences actually sounds better than the than the recorded. Version. Oh really? Yeah. No, the next Goon Show will be on July the seventh, nineteen eighty-two. And from Goon Show number 167, farewell, P.S. forever. I don't know how else you could have ended it, really. Uh, as you say, it was, it was just this, uh, an opportunity for them to wheel out all your favourite characters. Uh, although Salas doesn't do William, I don't think. He doesn't do old mate. Uh, Spike, oh, Spike oh, does. Oh, like the, uh, yes. It's interesting, isn't it, the way they... And they did, they did share occasionally, because I remember... In the late 70s, early 80s, they did those adverts for Barclays Bank. Yes. 
and it was only Milligan and, and Harry Seacombe. And you were, you were able to get the floppy disk, not a floppy disk in the computer sense, but one of those old disks that was made out of plastic you could bend. And Barclays Bank would send you a copy and you could play it by winding it on your, with your finger. And uh, Milligan would, would play Blood Knock and would play mm. Blue Bottle. It was clearly him playing them, but it, it, they, they'd swap the roles and Sellers wasn't involved. And I think there was a couple of times, I know during the Goon Show when Sellers didn't turn up, for whatever reason, we all assume he was, it was illness, and they had to draft in Valentine Dial and Graham Stark yep. and Kenneth Connor to play all these these vast array of characters. So there wasn't that sense of precise ownership. They did sort of share it around a little bit when they needed to or had to. There's a couple of Tallygoons episodes where, for reasons unknown, Sellers isn't available. So you, so Milligan's doing his character's voices on that, like Blood Knot. Oh right, okay. Not not entirely successfully, <laughs> no. uh, but yeah. And then then we have so we have the the, the build up and the, the freak out at the end, and then uh, an explosion essentially with a teaspoon at the mm. end, which I always love. I love I love whenever <laughs> there's on the Goon Show an explosion with a bit of cutlery at, at the end. <laughs> um, at the end. Yes, and 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 Andrew Timothy then says the next Goon Show will be on July the seventh, nineteen eighty two. I didn't actually look up. I should have done look up, see what what things happened on seventh yeah, yeah, of July, nineteen eighty two. But um, <laughs> obviously, that was not to be. Uh, Sadly, not. No. no. Um, and we get the play out, and Harry. Ding the witch is dead, and, and, and we're out. It's, uh, it's yeah. done. And then Harry thanks the audience, and Spike says, "Now get out." Get out. Uh, <laughs> I listened to a radio. I think it was the Today program interview. Um, publicizing this uh -huh. they interviewed spike and they interviewed harry i think um and all spike seemed to say in this interview was get out <laughs> <laughs> that just that was like his uh, thing at the time his catchphrase at the time does it worry you that perhaps it could fall flat uh it does occur to me yes i'm a realist you know what are you making a serial out of this no no You've no, been no. Here for two hours yeah no i have not God save our grace. now get out now afterwards obviously if you've seen the video recording uh, they they get the families up on stage uh -huh. spike apparently was delighted that his his whole family was able to be there um i think that was that was the thing that he was most happy about with the fact that mm. they could be there and see the yeah see the show and see you know the 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 warmth um yeah. sellers drags michael and i think it's uh, sarah okay on stage but they don't they seem they seem like they'd rather be somewhere else i guess um <laughs> yeah you know it's it's all nice and ends you know everyone's everyone's happy with it essentially um it was then broadcast in october right uh, 1972 um and it was i think it was broadcast or the video the the video recording of the show was broadcast on boxing day 1972 okay. mm -hmm. They did an audience research report on the last Goon Show of all after it was broadcast. And they asked apparently 741 listeners. <laughs> Delighted though the majority of the sample were to have any chance to hear the goons again, feelings were mixed as to the standard of this much heralded swan song. Okay. A third of the audience were goon lovers, in mm. quotes, who celebrated the show with its unparalleled inventiveness. Oh. However, Another third had minor reservations with comments like it's not the best script ever <laughs> and criticism about the lack of a single theme, which is fair enough. I think um, one listener observed 
the first 20 minutes were rather labored, but once underway, it was as funny as ever. Um, and the remaining, I guess, third of the audience had generally never liked the goons and, and slagged it <laughs> off, essentially. <laughs> what were they doing there? Oh, you well, mean the, listen, the listening audience, not yes. the audience. Right, okay. Yeah, that's right. So, Oh, yeah. you can't please all the people all the time, I know, can you? That's I know. That's the problem. I know. Uh, so, yeah, it, it, it was to be the last... Um, it wasn't the last time that they recorded something together because they, they, they did record um, a couple of uh, songs later in the 70s. Yes, um, they but it was, Raspberry song, didn't they? That's right. But it was the last, it was the last Goon show. Um, and you just wonder if, if Sellers had... If Sellers had gone on for another 20 odd years i'm sure they would have done more they probably would they probably would but that's 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 where it's where it ended and that's was the, the final hurrah that we we have sadly but let's also remember the, the ramifications and the impact it's had on all of comedy there and after not only monty python who of course was famously influenced by them but everybody every up to eddie Izzard, who says this, milligan was the godfather of comedy the ramifications and this the explosion we're still feeling the ripples from even today as i say when i go into schools when a lot of poets go into schools we all take a little bit of milligan with us and the kids love it. And the kids, this this project I'm doing at the moment, which is a, a, a website working with children, creating ideas based on their ideas. Um, there's still a little bit of Milligan in there. In fact, this this new one, Un Unfinished Tales, is illustrated by Hunt Emerson. So it's all it's all connected. This new website, wonderful. Uh, we we we're all affected, even to this day, because it's 50 years since the last one. Yeah. So what else are you involved with at the moment, Ian? Well, I've got the, the, this Arts Council project I'm doing at the moment, which is uh, Unfinished Tales, Tolly Grimpen's Tales of Grot and Horror, <laughs> which are some wonderful goon-like stories that I've written, which the children then have to go online and finish off in their own inimitable way. And um, that'll be launched next week. <laughs> and it's uh, unfinished-tales.co.uk. And you can go on there and you can see these, these stories and also what the children have done in response to it. So that's... That's a big one that's coming up. And, and Hunter's done some amazing pictures uh, that are on there. Yep. And I've got some pitching for some more radio plays at the moment. Um, I'm always coming out with radio. I love writing for radio. It's brilliant. Mm. You don't have to dress up. You don't have to do makeup. You don't have to do scenery. You don't have to do lighting. You just get in there and do it. It's like Milligan says, it happens on the other side of the eyes. So I've done five radio plays is it now. Three are Goon Connected. Yes. And if you want to listen to the Spike Milligan and the Alpha Oak, it's still on iPlayer. It is. It was broadcast in 2018. It seems to be on iPlayer ever since. So you, you can go and hear that. Yep. And, and I wrote the Ken Dodd play, of course. And the latest one was Starship Titanic, an adaptation of a Douglas Adams stroke Terry Jones novel that went out over Christmas, directed by the Spielberg of sound, Dirk Maggs himself. Mm. And now I'm pitching for other radio ideas, but I'm not going to tell you what they are yet. Excellent. Just going back to Hunt Emerson for a second, we have also got product placement, product placement <laughs> called Moby Duck. Moby Duck is a parody of a well-known book you may have heard of. I can't mm. remember the title of it myself. Mm. And it's a, it's a picture book, and Hunter's done some amazing pictures, and that'll be coming out by Venturos Press uh, later on this year. And as we're plugging, and as you ask, um, I've written another parody of Roald Dahl. I did a book a couple of years ago called Billy Plonker and the Grot Laboratory which was a parody of a, a famous Roald Dahl book. And later on this year, we've got the FBG coming out. Not the oh, BFG, the yes. FBG. Yes. And this is the, the flipping big gnome. So those are coming out. So stay tuned. Lots of stuff on the horizon. Ian, thank you so much for, for, for joining me today to talk about this. It's been fantastic. And your knowledge is, ast is you know, astounding. And you're a very clearly a very busy man, very talented. I'm, busy I'm man. a very busy man. I'm, I'm surprised you've managed to fit, I've managed to fit you in. 
but um, it's, it's it's a Saturday. Got nothing to do now except the ironing and the washing up and, and play with the cat. So it's been an absolute joy. Listen, you think I'm you're the knowledgeable one, mate. There's some amazing stuff I didn't know about, and it's a delight to hear your your thoughts, your ideas, and your your enthusiasm too. Long may the goon fannery. Is that a word? Goon fannery. Fa- goon fandom. Good fan of that. That'll do. Yeah. Thank you. (laughs) Cheers, Mike. Thanks again to Ian. I'll be back next time with another show, another guest, another topic. And until then, take care of yourselves. See you soon. Bye.